0: Welcome to Fragmented, a software developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better developers. My name is Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. All right, Kaushik, so folks are pretty excited that we got the podcast back going. I know I'm excited. We're kind of getting back here on a regular cadence, so it's good to be back.
1: It is, it is. And as promised, we have today a topic that I've been wanting to Ask for quite some time, actually. Um, I know you mentioned you've dabbled a little with it mm-hmm. in the past, and I've done minimal to almost nothing in this area. Yeah, I only know of it as a concept. I've uh, I've seen and read about it, so I'm actually pretty curious to see what uh, where this goes. I have like almost like zero knowledge, and I've come intentionally with the idea of just peppering you with questions. Okay. Because I imagine a lot of folks also are in a similar position. So yeah. pretty much I wanted to ask you and pepper you with questions around serverless programming.
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's um, I guess we should probably define what serverless really is. That was going to be my first question. <laughs> yeah, so for me, and this is probably not a textbook, I know it's not a textbook definition, but... Serverless is exactly what it sounds like. You really are not maintaining any servers whatsoever. And this could kind of go, I don't know, some people will say, well, look, I'm running on my apps, running on my APIs, running on Heroku. Uh, It's serverless. I can see it's managed, but it's actually a server. When we're talking about serverless today, what we're really talking about is... um, using something like, uh, AWS Lambda functions as mm. almost uh, a way to, to power your, your application. So you really don't have any servers that you're managing. You're not managing any VPCs. You're not va- managing any, uh, instances. They're not running at all times. They're only running while the function is executing its code and then basically it shuts back down there are some caveats to that but that's kind of the uh the principle behind it and there's a lot of uh, benefits and also a lot of challenges that that come along with kind of developing an application in that way Hmm. so in a
1: very typical traditional application right i'm trying to think about like you know the say you spin up a rails web application or something if you i mean if you do it on the local most likely people don't see this but when you spin up a server like your computer your local machine happens to be the server right so you actually have to write rails console or whatever and the first gradual step that most people take is deploying it into something like heroku heroku is like a, you know very simple and in the early days it was like one of the most popular services that could it was at least touch where it would just take... You could deploy directly from Git or something and then it'll just load it onto Heroku and it'll spin up. There's a platform as a service, yeah. Oh, platform as a service, yeah. And that's probably the official term. Mm -hmm. But in all of those cases, you still had to manage. You still had to own a Heroku account. You still had to push to Heroku. You still have to like, you know, add Dinos. That's like their server kind of thingy, right? So all that is like definitely managing servers. And the next step, the next logical step for uh, companies that grow bigger than that is where you get into like aws land right uh, where you have uh, application servers you have elbs you have all that stuff um so i guess my question is you're saying i don't need any of that uh you obviously need some service there are some servers but you don't have to manage them like you, you don't have to like add say like oh my god i'm getting a lot of load today because hacker news or something discovered my website I don't necessarily have to keep scaling more servers? Is that how this works or yeah, well, what happens in, yeah, what happens in that scenario? Cuz that's like traditionally the thing in my head that seems to like appeal. Like if I don't have to do that, I'm I'm happy, right?
0: Yeah, so I think the best use uh the best way to explain this is kind of the use case that I that I went down for playing with serverless so um I'd say about, I'll kind of give a little backstory here before we get into the real nitty gritty. A little over a year and a half ago, I wrote a little uh, command line script using JavaScript. I wanted to post a, a GIF to Instagram for fun. Uh, but as most people, I don't know, some people know probably you can't just grab a GIF from your phone or, or whatever and upload it to Instagram. It's just different file format. A lot of times GIFs are not long enough to post to Instagram. I think they need to be one and a half or three seconds long. I, I forget it's in my code somewhere. Uh, and it has to be an MP4, a certain format, blah, 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 um, etc. So I wrote a script to actually transform a GIF into an MP4 file and it worked. And uh, I was very happy with it and I used it a few times and eventually I kept using it here and there for fun. And then I realized, you know what, this would be something very useful to somebody else. And so I ended up just creating a Node.js application that would do that for me. Now the challenge there was is if you've seen GIFs, GIFs can be quite large, megs, you know, very large. And if you upload them, uh, you need a place to put them. Well, in Heroku, the file system is Eph- ephemeral I, f- I forgot yeah. to say that properly that's right. that's right ephemeral which means it doesn't persist it's really you just you have to consider it's just going to go away at any time um and there's the space is limited and then you have the scaling problems and so I initially built a node.js application and it would and it worked uh but the problem was is the processing time that it took to to transform these gifs into mp4 videos was very processor intensive mm. and um you know, I get a few requests in there and it just starts bottlenecking immediately. And I was like, I don't, this is not going to work unless I have a very beefy um, server and that's going to just cost a ton of money. And I kind of had to take a step back and said, well, if I want to create this site that allows you to upload a GIF and then you just get back a, an MP4 file you can post to Instagram, how am I gonna do this? Now, this kind of steps, sidesteps software a little bit into mm. the side project land that we all get into every once in a while. We have an idea for an app, and then we think, oh, how can I make money on this? And I'm guilty of this with, with everything, I'm like- you got the king of this.
1: You've done this quite
0: a few times, I, right? <laughs> I can't, yeah, if I can't turn this into an app that I can productize, well, then maybe I shouldn't make it. Uh, I finally got over that fear, I don't even fear, just that Roadblock about a year ago when I listened to a podcast from Josh Pigford. It's called Founder Chats. He's actually the host of the podcast, and mm. he did an episode where he almost like he interviewed himself, which is kind of weird. But he talked about all of the products that he has built as side projects by himself. He's the founder of uh, Bear Metrics, which is a SaaS analytics tool. And so he actually has written many applications and has had successful blogs and sold. He said he sold many different software products. And long, to make a really long story short, uh, what he does is if he finds interest in something, um, he'll, and I'm really dumbing this down, he'll build it, had fun with it, learn it, put it out there for the world to use. And then if for whatever reason, people start using it, if he can figure out a way to productize it and make money, then he will. If not, then he's just like, well, Either I'm tired of this, or I don't know what else to do. He'll just throw it up on uh, some type of site like Swap, I mean Flipa, and then just kind of flip the site. Now it may, he may make a few hundred bucks, a few thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand. Who knows? He may just decide to sell it, and so that's kind of the the impetus of what I decided to do. I said, well, if I want to build something. Uh, and I don't know how to make money on it. I don't want to have to spend a ton of money to just run this service. And I just didn't want to have to be pouring hundreds of dollars out every month for something that was free for people that didn't really do anything. Uh, it was just a kind of a, a, a large piece of overhead for me. And so the, I started doing research and I said, well, how can I keep the costs low? Yeah, quick question though.
1: Just some follow up questions to this stuff because, like, you know, I'm I'm jotting some questions down. Uh, You said Flippa. What exactly is Flippa? Is that like something that just allows you to monetize something quickly?
0: Yeah, it's uh, flippa.com, F L I P P A.com. It's, uh, as their tagline on their website says, it's the number one marketplace to buy and sell. Uh, software businesses apps Mm. uh, i think even digital services domains all different kinds of stuff like that even shopify stores fba stores stuff like that so if you have built a side project and it's running and you're just like it works i'm not interested in doing this anymore i don't know what to do with it i could Mm. just shut it down you could just throw it on flippa and say hey look here's the analytics on it here's how much i've been doing it you know I'll, I'll sell it for 1000 bucks or 2000 oh, Interesting, so you can sell the entire service. Yeah, it's just go through a little bit of due diligence be, with the, the buyer to say, all right, well, let me see your analytics. Give me access to the analytics. Let me verify everything that you're saying. Can I see the code? Uh, or, you know, there's there's different things, but that's where a very common place to do it. And there's a few sites like that. That makes sense.
1: The other question I had was, you mentioned like a Josh from Founders Chat said that, okay, yeah. like, you know, I'm going to try and throw this, put this up on a service. So I guess this is where we entered the serverless programming, right? I like the sound of that, but the problem is like, there's so much of this skeleton work that has to go like go um, that is involved in like trying to get it up right for example if i run like this cool thing on my computer and i have a bunch of these services that i run locally yeah. to get that up like i want to do that but i don't want to deal with that right because a that's not my forte and b i could do that but like you know i'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are around that is this something where you, if you get over that hump once then it just becomes easy and you keep doing it uh, or yeah, how much work is involved in, like, trying to productize that,
0: right? Yeah, so I think productization and, well, I know, productization and deployment of your application to a service environment are two definitely different tasks altogether. Um, you know, you could just be creating a tool that you need to deploy, and how you, how you monetize that could be a completely different beast altogether, um, or even productize it. So uh, for me, the intrinsic motivation was that uh, I'm getting into a lot more web, back into a lot more web development. Uh, it's just been my core foundation all of my career. And it's something I have a a deep love for uh, and passion for. So what I wanted, I've always wanted to learn how to build a serverless application. I've heard a lot of friends talk about it. I've read a lot about it. And I said, well, after I realized I didn't want to spend a lot of money uh, running a service, I said, well, how can I keep this cheap? And then I thought about this. I said, well, the way serverless applications work are a few, it's called a a serverless um, in AWS, they have something called a Lambda function. And basically, mm. it's just a function. You provide some inputs, it performs some processing, and then you you know, you know only get charged for how long that Lambda function is running. And so uh, the maximum time a Lambda function can run is 15 minutes. So oh. it's got to be under that. And even when it launched, I think it was only under five minutes.
1: Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know. So there are limitations. You can't just have like something running for the whole day. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you have something going wrong, terribly if you have a function that runs for a day, but well, that's good to know. So it's 15 minutes.
0: Yeah, and you can configure that on your Lambda function. Say, hey, look, this Lambda function, uh, it, it should time out after two minutes or it should And I think I've bought min- mine up to like 10 or 12 or something like that for very large files. It can just take a little while to, pr- to chunk through. Um, but on average, mine go through in, in seconds. Um, so you only get charged that in that regard. And then, this, so let's say I fire up this application. It's on AWS Lambda. What do I need? I know I'm going to need a place to, to. I need to be able to upload a file. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I need file space. What's that? AWS has S3, so I can drop the file on S3. Cool. Then I need a way to trigger a, a Lambda function. So I need some type of API. They have an API gateway, which allows you to basically create endpoints into AWS, um, so I don't have to have a server. It's just kind of pointer saying, hey, when this endpoint is hit, do this, invoke this function, invoke this Lambda function. And then AWS will handle behind the scenes saying, all right, here's an input. It'll start that function up. And really what it does, and I'm really dumbing this down, is kind of just starts a container behind the scenes and just says, hey, you're running node 12 or 14. And here's the code. It'll just go up, execute the code. It'll start a little container with node and the dependencies installed. And then boom, it'll execute your code and then it exits out and it's done. Now it will stay, there are some caveats to that. It will stay kind of warm for Mm -hmm. a period of time. So if you do have many requests coming in, that initial startup time can take a few seconds uh, of, the first time a function starts. So it will leave the container running for a second. So if you get a lot of requests, it'll just keep reusing that container over and over to save you that that time. Now, so again, I need a file space, I need a place to execute, and I needed a database to store records. All those are available in AWS and I wanted to learn all of them. And so it's kind of my impetus of like, cool, I'm gonna build this product that actually has usefulness in the public. I have no idea if it's gonna be take off or do anything in the world, but it's an opportunity for me to actually learn how to use and build an a serverless architecture based application uh, and put something out in the real world so I can have it have experience doing it. Pretty slick like do you plan to do like a caster IO course on
1: this? Uh, where you like yeah. do it? I don't know man, that's interesting because the way you said it I mean, I I have a bunch of these like, you know, throwaway services that I'd love to have because sometimes when I write these things and it's on one computer, you know, uh, if it's like on my personal computer and it's like a quick service and I have to access it from my work computer or something, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be nice to like just put it up for a service so that other people can use too. But again, my, the friction that I have with all of this is, okay, what's involved? I got to find out like yeah. AWS S3. So having yeah, to step through that would be pretty cool
0: yeah I, to be honest uh i don't i don't know if i'll do a course on it it was i i got the initial application working fairly easily um oh, that's good to and, and how i did that is i just used postman uh mm. to as my client which is a it is basically a http client to send requests up to AWS. And then inside of AWS, you can just do console log. Now, here's the thing about AWS that most people may or may not know. AWS is like Legos. It literally is. They've learned how to productize everything. Like, I needed to to do logging to see what's going on inside of my function that was failing. I didn't know where to go find the logs. I couldn't find them anywhere. I had to reach out to a friend of mine who's an AWS guy and he said, oh, you need to turn on CloudWatch. I was like, what's CloudWatch? He goes, oh, that's where their logs go. And I'm like, Oh, I got to pay for that? And he goes, yeah. He goes, everything has been productized at at Amazon. So I had to go turn on CloudWatch and then make sure the logging was enabled for the function that I was working within. And then, so it's kind of like, I hopped through a lot of hoops. It wasn't an easy thing by any stretch of the imagination. And honestly, if I have to write or I do write another application, I'm still going to lean towards my preferred stack, which is Rails. That was going to be my question. Like
1: having done all of this, would you go back to using this? Or like, is it a use
0: case kind of thing? It's definitely a use case thing. Now, if I knew, I'd probably build my, let's say I have a SaaS application software as a service, subscription-based whatever for business-to-business use cases. But for whatever reason, it has some large processing thing. Maybe you upload a video and then I'm going to go create 10 different sizes of that video for you Mm -hmm. and I'm going to deliver them so you can you, know, you can post them to Instagram, you can post them to YouTube and Vimeo and all whatever, wherever you want to put them. I'll give you all the sizes you need for whatever reason. Um, I wouldn't do that in Rails. Like I would actually write the core application, all of that stuff in Rails and maybe the upload button, mm-hmm. uh, would, and then it would just drop it off to S3. And then I would then right tool for the right job i would then use something like aws lambda to then do all that so i can scale it behind the scenes and then just communicate back to the rails app saying hey i'm done here's where the locations of the files are at so kind of a use case thing for for each application and i think aws lambda is really powerful for for, for these different like one-off type tasks got it first thing is what
1: languages are supported like you said aws and you said you did it with node uh, which i imagine then javascript uh, and like the node.js environment is something can i use rails can i use kotlin perhaps uh, for to run on like
0: aws lambda now you know i'm not sure if kotlin is supported now AWS, i'm, lo- I'm reading the docs here as i say this so full full disclosure uh, as a docs state here they support it supports java uh, so, but I'm not sure about the Kotlin, you know, runtime, all that stuff. Java, Go, PowerShell, Node.js, Python, uh, and Ruby. Uh, yep, those look like there. So, to recap: Java, Go, PowerShell, Node.js, C Sharp, Python, and Ruby. That's right. I miss C Sharp.
1: I do see some, like, blog posts. A lot of blog posts talk about, like, you know, uh, using... Kotlin for serverless frameworks and AWS Lambda. So in theory, it looks like it is possible. But yeah, I guess like out of the yeah right out of the box, probably like those languages that you mentioned.
0: I'm looking online right now, and it does look like uh, there's some blog posts uh, on AWS Lambda where you could use Kotlin. Which, to be honest, if I'm and this is personal opinion, mm-hmm. if I ever you know have to write any Java code, uh, I always just default to Kotlin anymore. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's gotten to a
1: point where I don't think I could like write Java as well anymore. You know? Oh, no,
0: not at all. I think one of, the, one of the cool things about AWS though is like, for example, let's say you have something written in Kotlin and it's like this massive, not massive, but it's like a lot of work you've put into it and it works really well. You can just, you know, if you can run that in AWS, you can just take that or Java, put it into that, uh, a function, maybe that does something, has an input and output. You can put it in there and then perhaps maybe it drops a file Uh, onto S3, you can actually have another uh, Lambda trigger, which means say, hey, it just is like a watcher. And it says, hey, anytime a new file is created inside of this S3 bucket, Mm -hmm. go ahead and invoke this function and then tell me about that file. So you may do something in Kotlin, drop a file in there, maybe it's a big CSV file. I may pull it over and need need to do some uh, machine learning or R static analysis, some weird analysis on the file. And I may decide to do that inside of Python because that's just the right tool for the right job. And they got great mm-hmm. libraries for that. I can then have another function in Python. So I can kind of mix and match inside of the Lambda environment, whatever I want for each function.
1: That's, oh, that's pretty interesting. So I, again, um, you, so your uh, GIF service that you are GIF service. Okay, don't like, yeah, don't at me. Uh, one of those things, uh, you did have to have like a Rails service running because there is a web page, right? And I don't imagine you can run web pages on the serverless programming infrastructure,
0: Right. That's a fantastic question. Uh, So I did build it all, like I said, with Postman, but I did need a UI. So I kind of went down that same route. I'm like, all right, well, then do I have a Heroku front end that runs on Rails? I'm like, all right, well, then I'm again, I'm back to paying for a server. I don't want to do that. (laughs) And so what I ended up doing then is I went and uh, I started using, I think, was it, uh, what's it called? They're called Z, they're called Vercel now. Have you heard of them? No, not really. So V-E-R-C-E-L, Vercel, it's a... um, It's basically a, almost like a, I don't know the best way to put it. It's a highly developer uh, experience focused company where I can just take some code and push it up and they'll run it. And so what I decided to do is I, 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 let me kind of explain my process here is I thought, well, I don't need a Rails app. I can do, I can run the entire application from Postman. So what does that tell me? That means I just need to be able to interact with an API. Okay. So I can do that in any language. It's like, okay, this is a perfect use case for React single page app. Mm. And so I was like, you know what? Let me do that. And so I created a simple. And I can upload the screenshot. It's I still have it. It's the ugliest app I've ever created. <laughs> it was dog ugly, um, and it, but it worked, and it was all in React, and it just communicated with the um, AWS API Gateway endpoint that I had and points that I had developed. Uh, and then I was able to just upload a file and it worked. And so then from there, it's almost very similar to to GitHub, uh, except they connect to, uh, uh, excuse me, not GitHub, very similar to Heroku, except I just push my code up to GitHub. I've connected Vercel to that GitHub repository. Vercel watches that repository and anytime new code is pushed to master, it automatically deploys it to my endpoint. So within seconds of me pushing to master, I have I have a CI/CD pipeline. That autom- it's just built in. It just automatically deploys updates.
1: And what specifically does Vercel do that Heroku doesn't do? Is it just that Heroku is like heavier weight and Vercel is lightweight? Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. It's just heavier weight. It's Vercel. I'm looking at the pricing page now. Uh, one of the big selling points here is HTTPS enabled custom domains, $0 a month. That's all Aww. I needed. Like, okay, I can do continuous deployment with Git and HTTPS with a custom domain. And so the domain of what the app we're talking about is called uh, GIFstagram. So it's like Instagram, but just with their word GIF, GIFstagram. Uh, If you go to gifstagram.com, you'll see it. Yeah,
1: And I'll make sure to add that in the show notes.
0: Yeah. And so it's just, that's all it was. I just put it up there and uh, I let it run. And it's kind of just hosted up there. I don't have to worry about managing a server. It's just a single page app. I could have pushed this up to S3 and had S3 host it. Cause you like have done everything in AWS. But at the time when I was developing this, of course there, this wasn't going to make any money. This was a learning experience. I said, well, how can I just get this out there and be pragmatic and get it out to the public as quickly as possible with as least friction as possible. And Vercel was the answer at the time. Okay.
1: That's pretty cool. This already sounds super interesting. Uh, again, I'm going to go down my list of questions. Um, what changes about your application? For example, if in my mind, serverless programming means you can't necessarily hold state in a way, right? And I mean, I mean it differently because you did mention that you're using uh, S3, which in some ways is state, and like you know the uh, the Amazon databases. Uh, So you do have state in that fashion. But typically when I write a Rails application, I presume local state, right? Like, you know, active model or like when I'm running an Android application, whatever, like I have like a lot of in-memory state, right? Uh, A lot of that, like, you know, singletons and uh, the like, all of that doesn't seem to exist in serverless programming. Do you have to go like all functional on this and literally everything is a function? You just provide a function and it gives an output. How? how like it's totally functional, yeah. And it's it's a different paradigm, man. So that was like my question. What changes about the way you write an an application? Because I'm sure there's like a change in mindset versus a typical web app, right?
0: Yeah, and it, I think it's, I need to make note here that there is no login here, though I may eventually add it. Uh, <laughs> that was my other question. What do you do about authentication? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, and at that point, it, it, you would have to treat it just as if you were uh, with any API, you'd probably have to create some type of token, store that token with expirations inside of the database. Uh, and that's what I would end up doing uh, when and if I get to that point, which it, it may, uh, we do have people using it every day. Um but yes, it does change. There's no state except for the state that's persisted in a Postgres database, uh, which is, there's a caveat there. I'm not actually using the serverless version because there was some weird um, conflict and versions in which I was using. So I do actually pay for the, the database to be running, but there is a serverless option that you could use. I just, at the time, building it, didn't want to, to fight a couple of dependency issues and just said, hey, you know, what? I'll pay for the database for a little bit. Um, but everything, it's uh, other than that, is 100% serverless. Um, so let's, take into consideration what happens on gifstagram you plug in your email uh and i need your email because everything uh on gifstagram is serverless and i don't know how long it's going to take so i can't make it instantaneous to come back to you now i could introduce some polling and probably to be honest actually just websockets would be better and that's on the feature list if if this does get some more traction but right now we take an email and a file and then once that happens what i actually do is i take that file uh, i take your email and then I see if, you, if you've if you already um, had a, a um, you've already uploaded a GIF before. Hmm. If you have not, your first one is basically, you know, it's like free of charge kind of thing. Uh, and if we just, I just upload it uh, and then I take the file and I upload it and then process it, return it to you. Now, if you, this is your second time back, you're doing another GIF to make sure that you're not abusing the email or spamming somebody, I do make you verify your email. So at that point I said, oh, they've already Mm. been here before. They've already got their free one. Now I need you to verify your email to make sure that you're not abusing the system. Uh, And that's just for protection of everybody. Um, I was gonna ask that too, like, how do you prevent people from just DDoSing this thing and just like, you know, going
1: and like constantly hitting you with requests?
0: Yep. Yeah. So they could hit me with requests. It just returns back. You know, uh, I forget what the, one of the HTTP codes that says, Hey, this, uh, so I return. that's uh, another thing. Since I don't have state anywhere, I kind of have to maintain a list of error codes somewhere. And we have, this is many applications do this Is you know, error code 12 is this and error code 13 is this. So I have a mapping of when this code happens, this means what happens somewhere in the system. And then the client can react accordingly. Um, so when the file gets up to, to S3, by that point in time, I've actually already know that the user's uh, um, you know email address and so forth, but the file to get to S3 is gonna be put into an S3 bucket. It's not a publicly accessible S3 bucket. So one of the cool things that S3 has is actually the ability to create secure posting URLs, which you can actually lock down in S3 saying, hey, I need you to create a, gen- a secure URL that's only valid for the next number of minutes. I only want you to be able to post up to like a 50 meg file. And then when that file is uploaded, I also want you to apply this metadata to the file and that's just metadata that's stored stored to S3. So what I'll actually do is I'll take the user's, you know, their ID, it can be like ID 12, and I'll just apply that as, you know, 12 metadata inside of the file. And then at that point in time, the file ends up in S3 and then, as soon as the UI comes back it says, hey, we're processing your file, we'll email you when we're done. Now on the back end, a whole bunch of processes kick off from S3 triggers. S3 says, hey, uh, excuse me, Lambda says, hey, there's a new file on S3. It then looks at that file and then in- inspects the metadata and say, hey, this file is for uh, user ID number 12. And then it starts processing that file. And then based upon whatever happens, does it encounter an error? Does it bomb out? There's all different you know, try catch scenarios in here. Let's say it succeeds. Once it's done, I then actually create a message in a message queue and say, hey, uh, this is done processing, Uh, notify the user. And I put it up in a queue. And the reason why I put it in a queue is because I wasn't sure if I wanted to use the the fan out principle, which is where you put a message instead of a message queue and you can fan it out to many different consumers. Right now, I only have one consumer, which is just an email notifier. And what happens is it says, hey, this file with this ID is done and then it just takes it Generates another secure get URL that's only valid for one hour, and then returns that back to the users an email and says, "Hey, here's your file. Download it now. It's only going to be available for an hour." And then there's a process automatically built into S3 that I've set up, which is just an expiration policy. It says, "Hey, any file that's older than an hour, automatically delete it." So I keep my costs low, and I'm not storing a bunch of files.
1: Man, that is beautiful. But it's also everything is like a hook on hook, right? Like you have to like. It's like it just makes me think. I was like, wow, one of those things in the chain breaks, then pretty much like it's like killed throughout, right?
0: And that's the big challenge is when I, when I built this, the happy path is always the easiest, right? It's just weird one off paths. And so thankfully, uh, when I got this kind of working in a state, I I put a call out for some people to test it and they're actually on the on gistagram.com slash credits. These are all the folks that had helped uh, a lot. Um, many different bug reports of people that had uh, run into stuff. And I found one of the big challenges with this architecture is tracing requests. Like because a request comes in, a function executes, boom, we drop a file somewhere else. Some other function picks it up. That processes, boom, we end up in a queue somewhere. Boom, we end up in Amazon, you know. SES, which is simple email service. Maybe that fails. Maybe that kicks off another process. All different kinds of things can go, hey, why wrong? So I had to start building in like request IDs like, all right, this is a unique request ID. And then I can start tracing that request through. And so once someone had a problem, they'll say, hey, I uploaded the file. It didn't work. I didn't get an email. I can then trace it through like, oh, Wow, this weird thing happened in the processing. Didn't anticipate that. Let me write a try catch around that.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. So like, it's almost like you have to. Yeah, it, yeah, it makes sense. It's like your RxJava chain, right? Where you have to account for everything. Ah, <laughs> huh, that's nice. I'm I'm looking at a GitHub by the way. It's like pretty cool. Uh, what do you do for the design and stuff? Like, is is uh, as in well, not design for the front end.
0: Uh, the front end is written in React. So, uh, the the front end is written oh, in yeah, React. You mentioned the that, yeah. CSS I'm using Tailwind UI. Uh, not tailwind, tailwind CSS.
1: Tailwind CSS, huh? Interesting. Yeah,
0: and then I actually went and got found a template online, which is what you're seeing here and then i just modified the template quite a bit and uh found a bunch of free vectors which is the vector you see on the oh well, what's not a vector it's a png but it's from a vector that's from a site called freepick.com and then underneath it there's some other vector looking images of images and stuff like that and that's from another site called undraw.co and you can just scroll to the bottom of gifstagram you'll see the the credits down at the bottom very left corner ah credits i see that this is this is pretty slick. I like it a lot. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a challenge because just all the the different moving pieces. And um, I think it, it would be only one of those cases where I would build something like this again as a use case. And I know someone else in the Rails community, was he was recently doing some stuff with some images. And he's delegating it off to AWS. Almost the same thing that I'm doing here, not for GIFs, but for a different reason. Uh, and then he's communicating back with Rails, and it'd be one of those weird one-off situations, right tool, right time. That makes sense. The
1: other question I had was, uh, how exactly does scaling work with this? Do you just throw more lambdas, or no, Does is it all just handled? How does that work? Do you set
0: it up? Yeah, so I'm just logging in here. Uh, from my memory, it's been a few weeks since I've been in there. Um, by default, uh, you can burst up to a, a certain... Uh, concurrency amount. And I think it's at 3,000. Basically, basically 3,000 functions can be executing at once, uh, which it'll burst up to, and then it will kind of slowly start kind of, you know, scaling back down and that's, it's dependent upon your, your region. So I think U S East where I'm at is 3000 West is 3000. And I think other regions are like 1000 and 500 have of a concurrency limit of how much they'll handle. And then at that point, uh, you just, I think you start getting errors, but that's one of those situations of like, well, if I'm getting 3000 requests, basically a second or more, I have bigger problems that I need to worry about. Your service has taken off at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then at that point, I need to to figure it out. And so I didn't build this to anticipate three thousand requests a second. It's just a, mm-hmm. a gift processor. Um, but there there are limits that are that are there. Oh, it says right here, it'll fail. Requests will fail with a throttling error, four twenty nine HTTP status code.
1: Mm, that makes sense. Uh, I had my last question, but I think in some ways you've already answered it, but. Say I wanted to build the next uh, I was gonna say Pingstagram, but like that doesn't make sense. I was trying to like, you know, <laughs> replace the GIF with something else. Uh, oh, how did you start with the idea? Was it just literally a bash or shell function on your local? Uh, how do I mimic this? You mentioned Postman, which is like makes sense, but you know, say you know, I wake up this fresh morning and I'm like, okay, I want to build this service. Where do you start? How did you start? Can you walk us through like each step, and then how you move to a more uh, productionized version of that step? Does that make a, does that question make sense?
0: Yeah, the the way that I started again was just a simple personal use case. I had that GIF I wanted to turn it to an MP4. How do I do that? Started Googling around, figured out a, a you know partial a bunch of different scripts out there that would do it, and I kind of just hacked together my own version that did what I needed. And then at that point, uh, and it was a node at the time. So all I really did to run it was I'd, in my command line, I'd type node, the name of the script, and I'd pass in a file name. So it's like, pop 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 on the command line and enter. And then it would just output right to the screen. And then I would just console log, you know, all done. And then my file would be where I expect it to be. Then at that point, I was like, all right, well, can I turn this into, um, you know, a web app? And that was, for me, that was my next logical step. I wasn't even thinking. Lambda. Honestly, for the first nine months, I didn't think Lambda. And in fact, I didn't even think that would turn us into anything. I thought it would just be a tool for me. Um, and then once I decided it wasn't going to work as a regular web app because of, of concurrency and the processing time and all that, that's when I started figuring out, like, well, how, where are the natural logical points where I have to break this apart? And that's why I started looking at my, you know, it was a couple hundred lines long. It's like, all right, what am I doing inside of here? I, I'm processing, I'm I am uploading a file. I am processing a file. I am handling error conditions. I'm sending emails. And so like, all right, each one of these is their own unique thing. Like I need one, file, one function that just handles uploading the file and writing a record to the database. That's all it does. And then boom, from there, the next one would be, all right, now it's going to process the file. And so to do that, I kind of had to learn what how AWS worked with serverless and what the triggers were. And the cool thing with uh, AWS is you don't have to use like S3 for a trigger. You can use a whole bunch of things as triggers, such as uh, maybe something in in a database. You could use something in SQS, which is simple queuing service. Uh, Perhaps some type of failure somewhere else could kick off a function. Any number of things could kick off a Lambda function. For me, it was just all based around files and S3. And so as soon as those files started coming in, I knew I needed to process it and it was done, I would drop it into another bucket, which would be like a completed bucket in S3. And then a different Lambda function would be invoked at that point in time to do something else. So just finding the natural logical breaking points of like, all right, kind of almost um, breaking things apart into what they should be doing in the first place. So instead of kind of having one monster function or one monster file, just break it apart into regular software that we've been doing uh, and just passing the parameters in and then figuring out how to put that into a Lambda function so that they can kind of scale out from there. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I wanted to
1: call this out. uh, In the typical web application land, most people talk about things like Redis, right? And in some ways, like if you want to like build something, but also keep state and not go the serverless route, that's like uh, one of the options that people use, right? For example, uh, if you're running Rails web application and you have something, and even if it's a regular API, right? uh, Say you're hitting an external api call and that call happens to take i forget what it is it's 30 seconds or something right like it's pretty short so if that api takes 30 seconds to respond so it isn't even your application it's just literally an external api is taking long uh i know you'll get a timeout well you won't locally but if you put it on any platform as a service like for example heroku will time out in like 30 seconds right and traditionally what most folks tend to do uh as they build web applications, is then make use of, like, you know, queuing service, like you mentioned, right? Like, some message queuing service. And then Redis is an extremely popular one that's, like, super fast. So, I mean, this is... It's funny because in... In the mobile application, like this is the only part about mobile programming that's like simpler in my mind because I don't have to worry about like uh, like doing these things. It's all in there, right? I can just wait and then I can like respond to that. But in web application land, that gets a little tricky because if you think about it, you're moving to a background process, responding on the UI. And unlike mobile, like the UI it works differently you need to like have something that's polling or something in the background right uh in order to like in order to uh ping that uh, queuing service and like respond to those reactions and then it gets like tricky because then you need authentication tokens and like a lot of that stuff so uh you know the web does have its challenges from that aspect and there's like one of the few things that are like maybe in some way simpler in mobile programming
0: yeah i agree i use um for example on caster.io i use redis uh, quite a bit in the background which is processed through sidekick which is a uh, open source job scheduler in ruby so i use that all the time but yeah it's one of those things is, and that's kind of one of the things that I had to think about a lot with Gifstagram is processing GIFs can, depending upon the file size of the GIF, it's a 30 meg GIF and it's a, you know, a 15 second GIF, like it can be quite substantial. It's going to take some processing power and if 30, 40, 50, two minutes long to process through it, um, based upon the load i couldn't have the client waiting for that so i just that's why i had to kind of drop it into s3 and say hey we're going to email you when we're done and that's what ends up happening is they just email with a link where they can download the file and that's you know i'm treating s3 really kind of almost as its own little message queue in a way
1: yeah you're able to do that because the triggers are so powerful that you can say when x happens and y happens do this right exactly yeah and. Stepping back, right? It sounds like this was like a fun project, and it sounds really cool, but you started off this entire process with the idea of making this uh, more cost-effective, right? So I'm trying to recount, did it land up being more cost-effective and were you to build GIFs again, would you use a similar process or would you just say, you know what, uh, screw it, I'm just going to use like a regular Rails server and then, you know, you go back to using something like Redis and Sidekick kind of waiting.
0: Uh, for this use case, I, w- I would probably do it the same way again. If it was anything else, as long as, it, if it wasn't file processing, I'd just go back to I just go back to uh to rails and, and Redis or whatever that makes sense
1: and uh because like just in terms
0: of cost it does lambda
1: being pretty effective
0: yeah t- yeah totally i mean i I can look at the processing time on the on the, the lambda function with platform as a services you're paying for that server all day long it's uptime, always running like, like, yeah. yeah it's always running it's always running um with AWS lambda I'm only paying for the execution time um and there's days sometimes when it's just Maybe it's a Sunday. No one's posting any gifts, and maybe I'll get a couple of users or none at all. I don't pay for it. Ah, that's true. That's true. So that's
1: where it becomes, especially as it's growing, it becomes extremely like cost effective because, yes, say if everyone if everyone's using giftgram like every second, at that point, maybe like the cost, you may not necessarily see that big a difference in cost. Uh Again, or maybe you would, I'm not too sure, but what, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Why it becomes really powerful, as you're saying, is because, you know, when you have the down days, you're not paying for any of it. Yeah.
0: And one of the other things that I wanted to not worry about is, is this is a product that that people are going to use, but it's a free product. And at the end of the day, it doesn't bring me any money whatsoever. It was an experiment to see if I could build something with AWS. I did. I put it out there. And one of my rules that I had set for myself is like, I don't want to create any more work for myself. I don't want to have to monitor something all the time. I don't want to have to worry about adjusting dynos or scalability issues. If for some reason this got picked up by some blog and I didn't know about it and I'm out eating dinner somewhere. Like the last thing I'm going to want to have to worry about is like, oh goodness, one of my products just took off. I need to worry about scaling right now. Hold on. Let me go out to the car. Like, no, with this Lambda stuff, like 3000 burst connections, like go for it. Like, fine, I'm going to eat dinner and maybe the bill will be a little bit higher. That's cool with me. So that's kind of one of my big requirements is I just didn't want to have to worry about it that much.
1: This makes a lot of sense. Uh, my, uh, my One of my last few questions was, how many options are there? So AWS server, like AWS, AWS Lambda was one of them. I know Azure has something from Microsoft as well. Uh, did you explore all of the options? Was it mostly because, you know, AWS is like the leading player? Uh, did you look at other options?
0: Yeah, I'd consider going over to AWS Azure Functions uh, because that's a very similar thing over there. Um, But the reason why I decided to go with AWS is just simply because it's the largest player out there. And if I'm getting back into more web development, I just wanted to have more experience with AWS. Um, I think I've even talked to you before. Um, You've worked with companies that run on AWS. The number of times in my consulting career I've run across someone who runs on Azure, I can count on one hand. The number of times have run across clients that run on AWS, I have simply lost count. So from a consulting perspective, knowing AWS uh, makes me much much more marketable. So I figured that's where I'm going to go put my time and effort.
1: That makes sense. I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, I didn't have too many other questions, but this is pretty good. I'm just trying to recount the advantages. Uh, so one is like, A, I don't have to like necessarily manage any servers. Mm-hmm. The second is like the ephemeral aspect of it, right? So you don't have yeah. to have it running all the, uh, all the time. And then finally, obviously, in like because of that, it becomes pretty effective from a cost standpoint, right? It does, yeah. And the disadvantages, I was going to like recount, what exactly are the disadvantages that you think having gone through this whole process?
0: It's a lot more complex than I mean, this is a very simple service. This was a simple single line command line application now when i'm running it in native in a serverless environment i have to anticipate all different types of things happening Uh, i can't be real time with the user everything's communicated through emails or whatever many different services are involved so it's much more complex than i anticipated uh and just you know for example just tracing logging
1: yeah i was gonna say debugging must have been a freaking nightmare debugging is a pain Yeah, it was a pain. If something, your email service just happened to go down for a second,
0: uh, you you know, you have no freaking clue what's happening, right? And and trying to figure out where to go to learn that. And after discussing things with a few AWS, like architect level folks, there's, People who just build their entire careers around AWS, like that's what their specialty is. AWS, that's how big this beast is. So it's definitely far more complex than I would ever like it to be, uh, and that's again the reason why. If it was anything else, I would, I will go back to Rails for for everything else. Damn. Any last thoughts on
1: this before we call it?
0: The only thoughts that I have is is everybody asks me a lot, like, "Hey, Don, what should I go learn right now? Should I be learning, uh, you know, Android? Should I learn Flutter? Should I go learn JavaScript? Should I go learn something? Find something you're interested in and just go learn it. Like, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, statistical programming with R. Like, if that's your jam, go for it. There's demand for it. There's so many opportunities out there. Um, Don't let the landscape, especially of AWS, if you would look at the number of AWS services, I've just barely scratched the surface on all the different types of services. There's ones that are just unbelievable. Um, So don't let any of that, you know, uh, scare you at all. There's documentation. You can always ask on Stack Overflow. Just go out and experiment and play. That makes perfect sense. And it goes back to
1: the uh, advice we gave in like in one of our previous episodes, right? I don't think we should be learning technology per se, right? Like don't learn Kotlin because, oh, and I mean, there is a use case for that. But if you are looking to get into programming as like, you know, just something that you want to dip your toes, uh, as a programmer, obviously, right? Like, you know, if you're someone like Don and you're like, okay, I need, uh, I work as a contractor, like as a developer contractor. Yeah, I need to learn AWS, right? And that makes sense. But even the way you went about it, I think makes sense. You need to find... The biggest problem with learning programming or, like, you know, anything to do with development is having the motivation to, like, just power through stuff, right? Yeah. And the most powerful factor in that is trying to build something for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. If this is something that you need, you will end up, like, learning a whole bunch of things, right? Like, so many people have, like, built their development careers around that i want like this app that does this thing for me on my mobile phone okay great how do i build this mobile app right uh, that's how like a lot of developers start out if you know for me a lot of my scripting stuff like comes from wanting to run like these scripts on my local machine right and mm-hmm. that's how i learn a lot of like core unix and linux and a lot of that kind of stuff web application obviously a lot of us started there my i started my career like that i was like i just want to put a web page right it was html yeah. css uh you know front-end development uh, CSS, CSS, all that stuff, you know, and that's how I learned. And none of that was because i was paid directly for it my first paid job was like you know a very traditional uh java web development oracle, very like you know traditional yeah. in a very traditional sense but i got into it only because of like you know wanting to build a web page wanting to like you know uh, build my own blog and even to this day like with my blog i that's where like i use it as a learning channel because mm-hmm. i want to do something very specific uh you know as the the owner of my blog and that's how i like research do i have to do it no but you know that's it keeps me motivated and i find it as a mechanism of learning and i think that's the most powerful way to learn anything right for you it i it feels like with gifstagram it was i need to get the service so let me like power through the different things if i yeah. told you hey don go and do this without the idea of Giftstagram, just go learn aws lambda
0: functions oh i've been lost you'll probably lead blog posts for about an hour and then you'll just give up right <laughs> totally yeah you gotta have you gotta have a goal i think one thing people get too hung up on is especially beginners is and I know I'm guilty of this is when I first started out I think oh, I have this idea uh I'm on my let's just say like I have a Roku right which is a tv uh internet tv player I want to create a Roku app that will let me bookmark specific television shows and then I can share that with all of my friends and then they can rate it and upvote it and then I'll provide recommendations to people who also like the same things I like That is a humongous project. You just gotta kind of scale it back a little bit. Say, hey, is there just a way that I can even bookmark a, a show? Okay, how do I do that? You know, then just do that. Just can I bookmark it? Can I put it on the web somewhere? Is it shareable? Right there, you've just exposed so many problems you need to go solve first. Just go down that route and wherever it leads you, you know, that's those are going to be the things that you learn, and it, it, it could be uh, programming, could be script, could be inter- being introduced to a particular type of programming environment, and then if that programming environment allows you to write Kotlin, and you know Kotlin, do it there. If if it's JavaScript or Python, then then maybe you need to use that, but definitely having that goal is going to help you, and I think your keyboard examples uh, are, are key, are key, primary
1: candidate of that. Thank you very much, sir. Is there yes. anything else that you want to say before we wind this down?
0: Nope, not at all. Just a uh, quick thanks to everyone who helped test Giftstagram. They are all located on giftstagram.com slash credits. Again, if you're wanting to test out the service and play with it, it's free for anyone to use. Just go to giftstagram.com and thanks for listening.
1: Also, uh, uh this is a very different time but i want to call out this in all likelihood is going to be our 200th episode oh wow i know that is amazing we came this long
0: (laughs) yeah i mean thank you all for for listening and if you're new thanks for starting us on this journey kaushik when we first started (laughs) we you, you reached out to me from a cold email we covered this before but it was we didn't know each other you just cold emailed me i'd like to start a podcast we have the same thought process around some software practices and let's chat. And um, we both decided to give it a shot and said, hey, let's let's just go for 10 episodes. It's kind of agree to that on a friendly handshake. And uh, we'll see how we feel after 10. And we kept reiterating and reevaluating, I think every 10 for the first 50 or 60, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, first like 50 or 60, every 10 episodes, we would check in and
0: try to make sure that we were doing well. Yep. And so here we are at 200. So that's amazing. Wow. Thanks for Kashik, okay. thank you for joining me on this journey too. Absolutely. And thank you for
1: agreeing to that first cold email. <laughs> I even remember the first few episodes, like we would see a hundred listeners and we're like, oh my God, hundred people listen to this thing that we That's just amazing. put out there. Uh, and like, yeah, well, fragmented has come uh, quite some ways since then. And like, you know, we hit snags and we had to pause in between. Uh, I know we're going to get this question a lot. Folks are like, oh, why don't you try to do something special for the 200th episode? We, we don't want to do anything right now because we just feel that the time is not exactly right there's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff going around in the world uh, that we want to just like take note of we are also part of this world in many ways and so we want to like we will we definitely this is a huge monumental achievement for both of us and we're extremely grateful to our listeners for having, like, come through this journey with us, right? So we definitely mm-hmm. do intend to, like, at some point, try to, like, celebrate that. We, I know we have gotten a lot of ideas. People are like, oh my God, why don't you, like, come up with a new design for your T-shirt? Uh, <laughs> right. we'll, we'll get that. We have a lot of those ideas, and, you know, we are just churning on them. It just, like, you know, we are just getting our bearings back. We wanna, like, double down and focus on the thing that we love doing, which is just recording and talking about technology. Yes. Uh, and we'll definitely get there.
0: Yeah, getting back on the cadence that we had is uh, is one of our number one goals. So we have more shows to put out there. So more goodness to come. Peace, brother.
1: That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.